1: now.
0: At the time that they created the Disaster Research Center, they wanted to get a greater understanding of how people react and respond to disasters, so it was from a sociological perspective. Ooh.
1: Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly, and I'm excited today to have a real special guest, and her name is Norma Anderson, and... We're talking about the William Aver Anderson Fund, and it's really cool. I came across this fund um, through a friend of mine and really took a look at what Bill did in his life career for mitigation and basically disaster you know, response and mitigation for, for worldwide. And if you guys haven't heard about this fund, this is going to be an exciting time for you guys. And one of the things that I really love about it is... The fund really pushes diversity in emergency management and emergency planning and mitigation. And so that's why I really want to have this conversation, because like we said before, we really want to grow this community and we really want to make it a great profession. And in order to do this, we need to uh, bring in people from all, all walks of life. So, Norma, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Todd. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today and to talk about one of my very favorite topics, the Bill Anderson Fund. Uh, I'll tell you just a little bit about myself, and then I'll tell you a little bit about Bill, and then uh, how we came together, and then why this is so important. I'm from Ohio, uh, Toledo, Ohio. My parents were part of the Great Migration there, and they met at Toledo uh, Toledo University, and uh, I lived there until I was 14 and moved to Columbus. Bill was born in uh, Akron, Ohio, and his grandparents were a part of the Great Migration also. They came from Tennessee and from Alabama. My parents came from Kentucky and Alabama and met there. So uh Bill moved to Columbus to work on his Ph.D. after having grown up in a family that, although they were homeowners, they were poor. No one had graduated from high school, but he had a uh, a mentor who was a African-American fellow who owned a small hotel near Bill's home. And he would ask Bill uh, every grading session, bring your grades in, let me see what you're doing. And then when he looked at his grades, he always talked about going to college. And Bill didn't know what college was, but he said as Sam talked about it, it was, must have been important. And so he kept encouraging him, had an expectation him And that was one of the things that inspired him to continue to go on to school. So I mentioned that because mentoring is so very important. Uh, he went uh, to Kent State University and got his master's degree uh, in sociology and then went to Ohio State to work on his PhD. And while there... One of his first classes pursuing uh, a Ph.D. in sociology was with Enrico Corantelli, or Henry Corantelli, who was one of the founders of the Disaster Research Center. He realized how bright Bill was and said they had just written a proposal to the National Science Foundation for some funding to create this center in which they would study disasters in the United States uh, from a sociological perspective and throughout the world. And they thought it was a pipe dream, but they got the money, lo and behold, and so Bill was in the first cohort of the Disaster Research Center when it was at Ohio State. The co-directors were Henry Quarantelli and Russ Dines and Jean Haas. So they were the implementers, and Bill became a director of the research center while he was there. Bill and I met at Ohio State. The first time I saw him, I was a freshman in a uh, an intro class, and he was a guest lecturer of about 400 students sitting, sitting there. And I said, oh my gosh, I would just want to marry a man just like that. So four years later, we met. We saw each other, but I was a little bit young. I was 18, and he was 26. But we met four years later, and we uh, decided we'd get married, got married in Columbus and lived there for a year and then moved it to uh, Arizona State where he taught sociology but was always involved in hazard disaster mitigation. One of the things he realized in that interest was that the tremendous effect on marginalized communities that in terms of preparedness for disasters, in terms of what they suffered during disasters, the lack of attention, that they tend to be low on the totem pole in terms of getting assistance, and the difficult recovery marginalized communities had uh, after disaster. And we see that playing out even now. Katrina, of course, what has occurred in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, what has happened in Texas, Houston as a result of Harvey, so we go on and on. And one of the realizations he came to quite early was that one of the reasons that there is such a low priority is that there's so few people in the area uh, who who represent those communities in the area of hazards and disasters. And so as he moved on from Arizona State to the National Science Foundation, he was a program manager had the opportunity of awarding, of course, uh, many grants. And one of the messages he would always deliver to those who secure grants to open disaster centers, to do disaster research, was that these programs, these centers needed to have diversity. Diversity in terms of staffing, diversity in terms of students who were doing the research so that they, having better entree into their own communities, and a greater understanding of the needs of those communities could be tremendously helpful in developing discipline. With hazards and disasters, is a relatively new discipline compared to many others, of course, you know, medicine, uh, a law, uh, which go back for centuries, of course. But hazards and disasters in terms of including not only what happens to bridges and buildings, what happens to people the sociological perspective and what those needs are. So a part of that initiative, in addition to wanting to encourage diversity among the researchers, was to encourage those disciplines not to be siloed. So engineering just doesn't doesn't do research on engineering. You have to do work with social scientists so that you're building buildings that not only can withstand hurricanes, earthquakes but also that you take in mind the social component that is very, very important in building communities. So he was at, excuse me, he was at the National Science Foundation for about uh, 25, 30 years, and then he went to the World Bank. Okay, so we're not in the air right now, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't need to say excuse me. Okay, thanks for letting me know. Okay, so after working at the National Science Foundation, he went on to the World Bank where there was, of course, a global perspective, and, and indeed, he found the same things, of course, to be a duplicate of what, had a, what happened to the United States in terms of marginalized communities. From there, he went to the National Academies, and he still had a tremendous focus on hazards and disasters, create the roundtables where he would bring in experts from many different fields who were researchers and practitioners. And uh have conferences disseminate information about how best to help communities. He um, Then as he finished his career, it uh, became time, about time for him to retire. But he had tremendous impact, positive impact on the fields of hazard and disaster. But the area that he felt tremendously sorrowful about was the still continuing low number of marginalized, representatives of marginalized communities who were in the field as policy developers, as researchers, as practitioners. And we had this code that we kind of spoke in. i attended many of his meetings with him, but of course, most he went to on his own. I had my own career. But he would come in from a meeting and he'd walk into the mud room, and I'd be in the family room and he would hold up his hand. He might hold up three fingers. That would mean that there were three people of color there and I was one of them. Many times he would hold up his hand and it would be one finger. I was the only person there. So when he retired, he still was quite active in the field. He was on advisory boards, boards of directors, different centers, and still hoping that he could have a positive influence on one of his main objectives, including the idea of inclusivity, including. People from marginalized communities, and so his death was quite abrupt. He was quite healthy. Bill walks miles a day, every day, unless I prevented him from going out in the in the snow or something like that. But uh, he was quite physically active, and we went on vacation to Hawaii and had an ac- had a bicycle accident and did not survive that. And so when that happened, in addition to the tremendous shock to me that he could have died so quickly, I felt that that passion that he had about increasing the number of marginalized and historically underrepresented people in the areas of hazard disasters and emergency management, we would not, I would continue to push that forward as best I could. And so Bill died in December of 2013. Uh, in April of 2014, I formed the paperwork to be submitted to the IRS to get our 501c3 status, which was awarded to us in July of 2014. But I immediately began the development of the organization of the William Abert Anderson Fund, best better known as the Bill Anderson Fund. I will say that the effort has been appreciated and has been joined by a cadre of his friends, colleagues, and of people who may not have known him but have a very commitment to, a strong commitment to uh, increasing the number of historically underrepresented people in these fields. Um, So this is not something I could have done myself. I was a core in getting it started and being able to have an opportunity to speak at different workshops at the uh, FEMA uh, Higher Education Symposium that's held usually in May or June each year in Emmitsburg, Maryland. They invited me to come and talk about the Bill Anderson Fund, what we're trying to do, and I put out a request for volunteers to help me, and I had this fishbowl and I asked people to put their business cards in them. They did, and I began to follow up and began to develop, with their help, Bill Anderson Fund. The decision was that we were, initially was that we would attract master's and PhD students, and what we would do would be to facilitate a successful graduate school experience. I was able to visit to get a good idea of how to organized this, the Florida Education Fund, which is in Orlando. And they have for 20 years been doing this type of work initially with African Americans, and now they've broadened to historically underrepresented uh, groups in the state of Florida. And they have a fantastic program that's about 30 years old in which they have workshops for uh, graduate students. Theirs is a purely PhD program, but they work in unison with I think 11 universities in the state of Florida, a fantastic organization that Lawrence Morehouse is executive director of. And so he spent time talking with me there and on the phone later as I was developing the fund we decided that what we would do is have three workshops a year. We would advertise and get people to apply, which they do, and there's an application on our website, the BillAndersonFund.org, for people who are interested in um, being uh, Bill Anderson Fellows. I will say, let me say also right now that it was that we were focused initially on master's and Ph.D. students, um, but what we have decided is that about a year or so ago, that our focus needed to be PhD students because we were so small, difficult to meet the needs of both those different groups. And we realized the tremendous uh, effort that one has to put forward and amount of work you have to put forward in order to acquire your PhD. So we became PhD focused.
1: That's great. Hey, let's, let's take a quick break here real quick, and then uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you, how do we as educators, and, and um, I teach uh, emergency management at a community college, how do we as educators encourage people um, in, the under, in the underrepresented areas to apply for and become part of the emergency management world? So let's take just a quick break, and we'll be right back.
0: Emergencies happen whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather-related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech, yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com.
1: Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at Welcome back to our conversation about the Bill Anderson Fund uh, with the, the founder and the wife of Bill Anderson, Norm, Norma. And so, we're, just before we left, we were talking. You're you're saying how you're focusing on on the PhD programs um, with your fund, and I think that's that's awesome. Um, and congratulations on that, by the way. And I think you guys are doing wonderful work. Um, but how do we encourage people from underrepresented areas to? come into this field? I mean, you know, it's nothing that you see when you're in high school. No one, I don't say no one, but not very many people go, hey, when I grow up, I want to get involved in disaster uh, response, mitigation, and research uh, to make the world safer. It seems to be a, a, um, a program that you sort of fall into. How do, we, how do we reach out to people and encourage them to join and to be part of this growing field?
0: And you're very right, Todd. Uh, your observation that this is a field that people fall into, they don't, fo- they don't follow it or become involved unless, unfortunately, they have an experience somehow, they know about a disaster, or they have a mentor or a teacher who knows about the area and gives them information. And so that's something that we have to, um, to change. My thought is that uh, we need to do a better job of informing counselors in high schools, um, and I think this this will need to take a perhaps a uh, for lack of a better word, an, an advert- phrase, an, an advertising campaign. Uh, everyone knows what it means to be a doctor. Uh, everyone knows what it means to be a dentist, what they do. They know pretty much about being an engineer in many of the different disciplines because they see it all the time. My thought, um, and let me also mention that we are in transition right now and have accepted the invitation by the University of Delaware to move to that campus and be a a part of the University of Delaware. And it's my uh, hope, and we're also at this time... um, Engage in a search for the new director of the Bill Anderson Fund, who will be probably an academic or will be um, there at an academic institution. And it's my hope that we can create materials, uh, uh, three-minute videos, uh, information pieces that are designed to catch the attention of people who are juniors and seniors in high school, because that's where you catch them. Everyone knows uh, of a a certain age what the outcome of Katrina was. Many people remember seeing that on TV. And quite often, when you're a junior and senior in high school, you're looking for, quite often, uh, a career that will help you help others. And so knowing that they can play a tremendously great role in helping people and preventing those kinds of situations, I think it's it's um, a quite an easy task to convince someone to go into this area. The difficult task is informing them of uh, the many different areas um, and and avenues that you can take to be a part of preventing those those kinds of situations, uh, preparing communities for. Um, and particularly those that are are in areas that may be hit by these kinds of storms or these kinds of incidents. I think uh, a lot of that would be working with those uh, organizations that are near and dear and involved in those communities already. So not only did would I approach counselors in high school, but I would approach t- uh, churches. I would approach approach and you know the um, barbershops and beauty salons. Uh, and I would, I can't emphasize enough, having something that would be a three-minute, three five-at-most video about how, how you can help. What, is this, what, is, what areas of study can you go into? And being able to go to a junior college and being able to, after those two years to four years, come out and be able to be a tremendous asset to your community. I think would draw students in is inform- the informing piece It's what we have to organize.
1: Those are really good ideas. I, I really can get behind that for sure. And that's like one of the struggles that I have is trying to tell people like, you know, what emergency management is and, and how to get them involved in general. And you're right. I think it's somebody who's been personally affected by a disaster. But there's areas like in California where we don't see the large-scale disaster you know, every year like they do in the hurricane center areas or the tornado places and stuff like that. So it's not until that earthquake occurs that people are really, or the large-scale fire, uh, that people are really affected by by the disaster and some of the frustrations that go uh, with the recovery. When I was an undergrad, I did my um, senior thesis on um, on minority affected Um, areas after the Northridge earthquake. And it was one of those things that it was women specifically. And as a matter of fact, I used some of your, your, uh, the disaster research centers research on it for, for my paper as well. And it was, it was minority owned women businesses. So mostly, you know, like beauty salons and stuff like that that failed after a large scale disaster. And that was, you you know, the, the Targets and the Walmarts and, you know, those big companies, they're going to be, they're going to be okay. And it's focusing on those small mom and pop, minority-owned businesses, which really affect, um, are, are the ones that, that failed at the, at the um, or did not recover, I should say, I shouldn't say failed, but did not recover after the disaster. And I think that when people see that impact on their community, that be- becoming part of this emergency management world can really make a difference in making their community whole again after an event like that.
0: That's uh, I agree 100%. And you are quite correct. Uh, those um, small businesses that service those communities uh, marginalized communities are the ones that that don't recover because they don't have the deep pockets uh, and the revenues and the reserves, financial reserves, to be able to come back online and and uh, uh, and be able to fully function the way that they had in the past. But I, you know, I also see, and I haven't um, tested this out, but you know, there are certain organizations that do very very well in and and recovery. You mentioned Walmart and you mentioned uh, the Starbucks Uh, there. They get up and open real quick. Sam's Club, the organizations like that, they get back up. And they have a plan for disaster recovery. They have a plan for disaster preparedness. So they have a plan for what will happen, what we're going to do, who's going to work, and how we'll open uh, done well before that disaster hits. And so when it does, then they evoke those uh, segments that have that training, and that becomes crucial in being able to get foodstuffs, uh, other articles that people will need readily available. Uh, Those trucks move very, very fast, and they get in, and they're there to service those, those communities. So I think not just using our own resources, but drawing on those communities who have a depth of experience Drawing on those those businesses that have a depth of experience and asking them to help, uh, that's one way that that could get initiated um, because you're going to need... Uh, uh, my thought is that you need organizations who have... I'm trying to be very diplomatic here, um, who uh, it's in their best interest to be back up and running, to be functional. And quite often, they will share some of that knowledge with the intent of uh, organizations that want to um, um, be prepared for disasters when they strike. And, you know, with the um, uh, climate change that we're experiencing now, and it's going to continue, it's going to get worse, so being prepared is crucial. But again, if you uh, I think that um, you're really very wise in being and wanting to reach out to younger students because those are the ones quite often who are so passionate about wanting to help other people, but that again, they just don't have that in their purview, they're not aware of it, so being able to inform them that these are opportunities where You can make a good living where you can be of help to your community and help to your family. That's what we have to work on, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. You know, everybody knows, you know, those that want to get into the public safety uh, sector, they know fire and they know police and they know paramedic. I mean, and you see them driving down the street, but they don't know emergency management. And I know that in some schools around, they have like the CERT club, the community emergency response team uh, clubs that they started. Uh, some of the service clubs, the Red Cross club, is another one that they've started at schools. And I think things like that are great. You know, when you when you come to some of the underserved communities, those clubs are hard to to get going. Number one, do they have teachers that are willing to? Uh, uh, be the club sponsors and two, do they have the, the the support from that community to be able to do things when everybody's always cutting uh, those programs and I really would love to see us as a profession really reach out to those kids in all communities for that matter but specifically in some of the in, in the underserved communities uh, of getting them involved in preparedness because I had a conversation with Brock Long, uh, we, we did the podcast with him and he said in some cases we're asking people to be prepared for you know 72 hours uh, for or fourteen days, uh, you know, from that time period, uh, for with disaster stuff, but they can't really afford that. You know, it's it's, a, it's an economic burden for them, and it's like, yeah, it is, it could be, but how do we get kids and and people in that mindset in that community? And it's hard for a guy like me to walk into a community and say, hey, you know, be. Be ready and, and do this uh, because I've, I'm not from that community. I, I didn't grow up in it. You know, I don't understand all the nuances of it, you know, but grabbing somebody from that community who gets as passionate about it a, as, uh, and, and goes and does it, it's easier for them. And you're right. Starting with the churches and things like this, that it's easier for them to go in and make that in, impact right away. And I'm excited about that. And, and I really hope that we can do more with, with, you know, the Bill Anderson Fountain Fund to, to promote that. Uh, and I think that's exciting.
0: I would be very enthusiastic about about doing that. Let me mention that sometimes I was an uh, an IBMer uh, in a previous previous life for a number of years, and we had a public service responsibility that we could engage in. Uh, and one of the things that I did was I went to high school, and, and I went to uh, I had one high school that I went to. Uh, for a semester or two semesters, working with students to appreciate what the work world was going to be like after they graduated. And so we did some really interesting exercises with them uh, that really engaged them. And of course, IBM paid for my time to do that, right? And I went out during the work day. So I, I mentioned this because if you, if something like that, that concept was created generally corporations have an interest in loaning some of their employees to to do those kinds of tasks and whether those tasks are actually going into the schools or whether those tasks are Creating a video that could be shown in those those schools and having workshops in those schools. I think that we it's important to engage people who do have the pockets, who have the willingness. Do uh, an approach with a with a plan of what you feel could be helpful and engage people from those communities. And I, I, I mention barbershops a lot because barbershops uh, quite often the owners of barbershops come quite often in a black community are kind of leaders in that community. Uh, They maintain a certain decorum there and they're trusted. And a number of organizations have used them along with uh, salons, uh, beauty salons, to disseminate information about HIV AIDS, about high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, because Almost everyone goes to one of those, and so in addition to the churches, because you know you do you do uh, you are you are able to gather a certain percentage of people through churches, but not everybody goes to church, especially young people. Like quite often, and so I hope I don't get in trouble there. Quite often, but they do, but they do go to the barber shop and they do go get to get to get their hair done, and they are placed strategically in marginalized communities where there is a, where there is a mass of people. So that's one of the things that I would engage, but you know I'm more than willing to talk about this, you know going forward, how this could be done, particularly, and let me emphasize, we will be bringing in a new director to the Bill Anderson fund, which i'm I'm totally thrilled about. Uh, we hope that that person will be in place by September, but we keep rolling forward so i don't I don't stop just because someone's coming in September. What I would love to be able to do is, you know, help develop a plan that they could initiate, they could develop, even if it's just a skeleton of this is what we see and this is how we would think it might be implemented. I'd be more than willing to participate in something like that.
1: That's great. Looking at your, um, at the funds website, and I think it's a beautiful website, by the way. Yeah, there's, and this is the cool part about it. When we talk about on the education side of things and, and you know, getting kids and and interested in, in the mitigation and planning and response uh, phases of emergency management. And there's a list that you guys have of disciplines and education disciplines, that is. And I think it's awesome. And I want to read this really quick because I, me, and I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I never thought about all the different aspects in the education side that can come into emergency management. So, architecture. Climate change, community resilience, economic development, epidemiology, emergency management, engineering, environmental sciences, faith based initiatives, finance, geography, geology, homeland security, IT, information technology that is, journalism, law, logistics, medicine, meteorology, political science, public health, uh, psychological mental health, se- uh, seismology, sociology, social justice, social work. Criminal justice and uh, urban planning, and it's like, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. All of those degrees really have a nexus into emergency management, and I think that's exciting that we could be that diverse on our on our education side, and that if we can reach out to the students that are interested in those fields and say, hey, here's a career path for you. That's exciting to me. It really, it really is. And and those of you that have been listening to me for a while, you know that I love education, and, and I'm kind of geeking out right now uh, with this conversation because I'm excited about it, but. But that is some really great stuff right there and the work that you guys are doing with the disaster research center is, is beautiful stuff um can you talk a little bit more about the disaster research center and then like what bill did and his vision of that was
0: at the time that they created the disaster research center they wanted to get a greater understanding of how people react and respond to disasters so it was a, from a sociological perspective Uh, And so they did, initially they did studies on um, fires, like uh, fires in senior citizens' homes. They did uh, when when there was flooding. My husband did his dissertation on the Alaska earthquake many years ago. And so what they're studying is how do groups respond to disaster. And there are a lot of of myths about what people do during disaster. There is a myth that people panic. People don't panic. People quite often are very helpful to their neighbors. There's also a myth that there is looting during disasters or after disasters. And you're going to have a small contingent where that may happen. But if you've had a disaster and if your kid needs milk, if your kid needs diapers, there's nobody in the store to sell it to you. You've got to get it some way. And so you're going to go into a store and get it. And quite often what happens, people leave money uh, in the store, but they've got to go in and get uh, acquire goods. So that's a myth that has lasted over the years that uh, social scientists have worked very hard to try and debunk. But did I answer your question?
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what what I got out of it.
0: Right, right. In in addition, so uh, you you were asking how they got started and the work they did. And so they did research on communities, how they respond. They wrote articles and books. They held conferences. They disseminated that information to municipalities, urban planners who were in, in cities or in communities who made decisions about what process would be followed, developed to be followed during disaster. And so that was pretty much their role. They also participated in a lot of research with a foreign entity, uh, a lot with Japan, because, you know, Japan is very earthquake-prone. Also, the same is true with China. The same is also true in Turkey. They have a, a lot of earthquakes there. So a lot of research was done with them. And then, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, not wanting to be siloed and just focus on the sociological perspective, uh, they wanted to work with engineers so that buildings could be built in a way that not only are strong and will withstand disaster, but also because they, they want to incorporate the needs of people. There is, I had an experience, and I don't know if you want to in- include this. I went to Cuba last year, February of last year. And I had, do we have time for this? Sure. And I had done a lot of reading about how Cuba handles disaster. And Cuba has a, a world-known meteorological institute, and it's been there for years, even during the Batista regime, I think. And they have, because of uh, where they sit, and because of the in great incident of hurricanes that impact the island, they uh, were very strategic and very proactive in being able to understand how winds would would affect the island and begin to prepare for that, their population for that. We, I don't know if you re, have you if you've read about the Galveston uh, hurricane that killed thousands of people uh, many years ago. Okay, so Cuba. Uh, knew that there was going to be a severe hurricane that would impact Galveston. And they uh, informed the United States that they needed to vacate Galveston. But the thought was kind of, well, you know, a bunch of Cubans down there, what do they know? And so they didn't pay attention. They didn't take heed. And so we know that thousands of people died there. But what they do in Cuba, it's very organized the way they prepare for hurricanes. And what they do, and Cuba does not have a lot of money. We all know that. But they have a very low incidence of uh, death as a result of, of hurricanes. And what they do, they have, um, and I realize it's a communist country, and so they do things that we cannot make people do. But understanding how they do them can inform us about some strate- strategies perhaps that we can develop. And so what they do, they, have, they also have the island just divided up into communities for medical service. And so they have clinics throughout Cuba and at those community clinics, they know everyone that's within their community. They know who uh, is sick. They know who is elderly and may need help. And so they organize, have organized in such a way that 72 hours before a hurricane is supposed to impact a specific area. And the buildings in Cuba are made a cinder block, so you don't have to worry about them blowing down. And there are a lot of apartment structures. And so the 72 hours before it comes, those people who are elderly, children, people who are sick, are moved out of that area. They're moved to a completely different area. 48 hours before the storm is to hit, uh, people who live in the lower levels of those buildings are either moved up to a higher level if there's occupancy there. And if there's not, they're moved to a completely different area. Uh, The police are responsible for moving them, their furniture, and their pets to another area where they will be safe. And so that is why even all of the hurricanes they had in the Caribbean this past year, the incidence of death in Cuba were extremely low. Now, what they also do, because this is organized through the government, of course, every year they have an enactment, uh, I think it's like four to five days, where they go through the process of moving people out, practicing in preparation for hurricanes. And so everyone gets engaged, they go through all the processes, and so they're able to correct whatever issues that may surface at that time so that the time comes they're better prepared. And so, uh, again, I can't emphasize enough that they don't have a lot of money, but they do have people who have a willingness to act because they know what the devastation can be. They want to prevent that, so you have to be prepared. So I think that's a great story of what communities can do with low amounts, of, with little amount of money, but with the willpower and the willingness to be very, very effective.
1: I was just read this book called Raven Rock. and It's about the um, nuclear, you know, bomb type stuff and the continuity of government plans and stuff, and. Back in, and I obviously I was I was born in 1970, so I don't remember any of this. But I guess back in the uh, the 50s and the 60s, and even I guess into the 70s a little bit, they had community-wide nuclear drills where people would go into the bunkers under you know, at the shelters, and you know. If we, I know, I know, we're a little bit more populated in the in the country now than we were back then. But I mean, if they're doing it back then, I'm sure as communities we can we can do that again. And, and if we're practicing for that, I mean, I think that the idea of what you're saying is is fantastic. And I think that's a, something that as emergency managers we should look at best practices across the uh, across the globe, not just here in the United States.
0: Right. And you know, a lot of it is, like I said, is preparedness informing a community what needs to happen. And in this country, we can, of course, force people to vacate, but being informed and knowing the history of what ha- has happened during disasters, if you're not prepared, can sometimes help persuade people who might be reticent about leaving.
1: Right. Well, Norma, we're coming to the to the end here. I do have. Well, two things. One is, uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can uh, they do so?
0: There's a Bill Anderson Fund uh, website, and you can reach me through that. I'm at norma at norma.billandersonfund.org. They're also, like we mentioned before, they're, in addition to the information about all the different disciplines that feed into uh, hazard disaster mitigation and emergency management, there are about 27 there, and I'm sure there are more can find that there, but you also can look at information about what we do. You can see our, our list of students who are there, uh, and the areas of the disciplines that they are involved with. We're on Facebook at, uh, hold on, and actually our Facebook can be reached through the website if you go down to the bottom of the page there.
1: No worries. Yeah, and but and we'll have all this information too, um, links and whatnot to the Bill Anderson uh, Fund dot uh, org uh, page uh, on our um, on on the uh, our uh, on the show notes, and obviously we're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and we'll have this information uh, up there as well. And we're we're obviously following you guys, and we'll make sure that we'll be able to share this information with anybody who who wants to get it. Okay, so here's the toughest question of the day. What book or publication do you recommend to somebody who is interested in this line of work?
0: There's one called Facing Hazards and Disasters, which is more of an academic sort of book that has a number of different chapters by specialists in the field. There is also a book called uh, Children of Katrina, and Lori, Dr. Lori Peak, who is director of the Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she has a number of publications in relation to disasters and marginalized people, children. Uh, my husband at one time wrote a an article, a white paper, in reference to uh, the effects of disasters on children because people tended to think that they just bounce back. You know, they're just kids, but children are traumatized. And so that became kind of a a stream of study. So Children of Disaster is a very good book. There's a book called Hurricane Andrew by Walter Gillis Peacock and, and others. There is, I think those are the three that I would. A, a disaster's by Design, also by Dennis Valletti is a, a very good book.
1: This is a really good book. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for those book uh, recommendations. That's awesome. Okay.
0: Okay. Let me just also say that both Dennis Maletti and uh, Dr. Lori Peake, uh, be Bill Anderson Fund board members. So there's a disclaimer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Dr. Maletti is all over the place. He's a a wonderful guy. I've uh, met him a few times and yeah, so anything from him is going to be good, and if he's involved with your foundation, you know that it's worth well worth the uh, the the time to listen to this podcast and also to go check out the website and and get you know get involved. So thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to to add to uh, you know to the emergency managers out there that are listening?
0: Well, I just encourage them to continue in their outreach to younger people, to encourage them to become involved because the disciplines are, it's very, very rewarding work. All of my students strongly feel that they are giving back to their community. And so it's a wonderful world to be involved with. And the need is increasing, not diminishing.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much.